0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan.
1: And today we are going to a place where it is cold outside. It reminds me of the beginning of Groundhog Day where they're like, get your beauties because it's cold out there. Grab your parka. Oh yeah, eh? (laughs)
0: so today's story is a pale of air by fritz lieber who i knew more as a fantasy author than a science fiction author it turns out the dude wrote a whole bunch of science fiction probably well actually yes before he became famous for the fantasy stuff that he wrote and if you know him from fantasy you probably know him because of the adventures of fafford and the gray mouser
1: yeah, I think he actually wrote that before he did the science fiction stuff, if I remember correctly. No, oh, maybe but that's true. Yeah, he's he's the guy who first came up with the whole sword and sorcery concept.
0: They were actually some of the first novels that I read as uh, probably somewhere in, in in upper elementary schools when I discovered them. They were the first ones that I read that were not high fantasy or not like the sort of the fantasy version of space opera. You know, it was, it was gritty, it was dark, it was it was it was really interesting and i was fascinated by it as a kid
1: yeah it was kind of interesting because you know it's one of those series where the characters actually develop over time i think they like both get married at oh, some yeah. point in time and and he made a lot of money off those i think that even like the dungeons and dragons people picked up on that stuff and and tried to license it from him
0: yeah there's a one of the supplements that they sold back in the i think the first time it came out was in the 70s they they turned characters from all across fantasy literature and from mythology into D&D characters. And of course, they couldn't do it without having Fafford and the Grey Mouse or be on there. So.
1: so this all has absolutely nothing to do with the story we're actually supposed to be covering, which, as you said, is a pail of air. It's a good yarn with maybe a few scientific problems, but... We'll talk about that later.
0: Yeah, remember when we talked about Stephen King having trouble getting a story published? Well, the story, the jaunt that we talked about because the science was a little wonky? Well, Lieber sets the stage for wonkiness, really.
1: Well, it was 1951, so maybe the standards were a little more relaxed back then. <laughs> nah, who
0: knows? Regardless, it's a good story. It's an interesting story, and it's very you know, very much in the realm of of the post-apocalyptic kind of stuff. It's probably one of the earliest post-apocalyptic stories that I've ever seen.
1: And a very small post-apocalyptic society it is with only four people. Well, at least for the majority of the story, we have the the narrator who is a 10-year-old boy who has no name. I keep for some reason wanting to call him Bud. I don't know why. And I also didn't know he was 10 years old because that little fact is left out of the version of the story that I have. But we'll also get into that later. Um so in addition to the narrator we have Pa whose real name is Henry a former scientist and then Ma and Sis so yes Pa Ma Sis and a boy with no name very and quaint that's it. very nuclear family
0: and they think that they are the last four survivors on planet earth and they're trying to figure out well for, their their main effort is just to survive but Pa holds on to this notion that They might somehow survive long enough that they, well, might discover other people or that they might somehow find a way to start rebuilding society.
1: But at the very beginning of the story, you've got the the main character going outside and scooping up a pail of air, which of course is the title of the story and kind of sets the stage for why do you have a pail and how do you scoop up air, which they describe in great detail later on in the story. But we find out again, everyone on earth is dead. These four are the only ones left around. The ground is covered with layers of frozen air, four stories deep. You know, the narrator, while he's getting his little pail of air, is startled. He thinks he sees like a light wandering around off in the distance and starts to mention a little bit about what happens where he talks about that the earth has, quote-unquote, gone away from the sun.
0: Yeah, and so one of the things that happened was that the atmosphere froze or the atmosphere was disrupted?
1: Well, I think it was a little of both. So basically after the, the guy, after the kid goes out, gets his little bucket of air, he goes back to this place that's called the Nest. And this is where he lives with the other characters, Pa, and Sis. And the Nest is, it's an old broken down apartment building and they live inside it with, I think like 30 layers of blankets that are hung around the ceiling and walls and floor to kind of insulate them from the outdoors. They've got a a fire going in the middle. Uh, They have a bunch of clocks which they constantly watch because there's no longer a sun or a moon. And we find out that the reason they're getting these buckets of of frozen air from outside is they bring them in, and as the air melts, it provides oxygen that they then use to breathe. You know, they, they mentioned that the outdoors is now a, basically just layers of frozen elements because it's so cold, right, all the elements froze. Uh, they previously met up the atmosphere, oxygen, nitrogen, so on and so forth. Oxygen and helium are on top being the last ones to freeze. And he mentions that that Pa actually compares it to what he calls a pussy coffee, which means something completely different. But we can talk about that later as well.
0: Right. And so the idea behind this is that because the 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 elements freeze at different at different temperatures, like Dan was saying, that they scoop up like this frozen air and carry it back. And and they just keep buckets of the stuff around. They and they have they've gone down into the cellar of their building and they've retrieved a whole bunch of charcoal that was left behind, and they keep buckets of charcoal there as well. I was gonna say the the nest. If you're having trouble imagining this, think of it as the most amazing blanket fort you have ever seen or have ever heard of. <laughs> like it's where at the center yes. there's a little opening and it's just layers and layers of, of blanket wall all around them. And they, yeah, like Dan said, they've got their, their, their sleep rolls and their little kitchen and, and the whole bit. Yeah, there, they've got there right like inside.
1: old cans of food that they've salvaged somehow. And that's how they live is on all this, you know, frozen canned food.
0: Yep. And they just, they bring stuff into the nest and it thaws out.
1: Yeah, they don't really mention how long they've been in the nest though. You, you kind of get the feeling it hasn't been real long, like a few months or maybe a few years, but not real long. I mean, obviously not long enough for all their stored food to... Disappear.
0: There's a reference early on in the story to the boy and his sister being born after the apocalypse.
1: Hmm. No, I think they were born before, actually, because, you know, who's going to deliver the baby, right? They mentioned that they both have to stay up to keep the fire going. And I, I can't imagine that, you know, they're doing that while they're having kids, too. It seems like it's less than 10 years because if the boy's 10 years old and they were born before the thing happened, it's been under 10 years anyway. So getting back to where the story was, so so the boy, you know, I can, again, his name's not Bud. I could just call him Bud. <laughs> he goes back inside. He's got his bucket of air, right? And he talks about the fact that, hey, I, I just went outside to get the air, and I think I saw some kind of light floating around out there. Now, Pa questions him. He's like, was this a natural phenomenon? There's all sorts of crazy stuff that happens when you're at or near absolute zero, you know liquid helium creeping around and and like weird electrical effects and weird star reflections and all sorts of things that you know make it look like things could be moving but really aren't but anyway ultimately they put on what they call their outside clothes and from the description they're their homemade spacesuits right it's it's vacuum and it's almost absolute zero and they go outside and then
0: then we have ma why don't you describe ma a little bit bill When the boy comes back and and says, Hey, I think I saw lights. Ma kind of goes a little nuts and and she, it, it turns out that she's, I guess, fragile would be the way to say it psychologically. And she's easily startled and she, she gets obsessed with the negative in the dark. And so she
1: seems a little over the edge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So later on, we learned that, you know, she didn't, she wasn't always that way. Once upon a time, you know, she was really strong and really stable, and they wouldn't have survived without her being like incredibly strong and and resourceful and all of that. But it's kind of taken a toll on her, is kind of the, 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 I guess, the, what we're supposed to take from that. So the boy and and his dad get into their spacesuits, which are made from things like plastic buckets and and duct tape. By the sounds of it, not that there was duct tape back then or back when Lieber was writing, but it was something 1951, along those lines. there
1: was probably some duct
0: tape around. Suffice to say that they wouldn't be hermetically sealed or anything like that. But the the oxygen that's trapped inside the suits while they're putting them on sustains them long enough to go out on short excursions. So when they're out on that excursion, Pa explains to the boy that Mom used to be much more stronger and resilient, but that he says, "You know what? Let's not let's let's keep this to ourselves, this whole thing about the possibility that there are other people out there."
1: Yeah, and, and Ma's kind of almost afraid that aliens are going to show up one day and me, you know, they know everybody else is dead. They talk about hearing the last people on the radio go out and that, you know, they're they're absolutely convinced there there's nobody else out there. So, yeah, they go outside to investigate this light, and and there's a lot of detailed storytelling about what actually happened and how it happened, right? You you get this idea, or or he tells us that the Earth was pulled away from the sun, pulled out of orbit by this dark star, and is moving away from the sun. You know, they're in a frozen, earthquake-twisted cityscape that was caused by the catastrophe when the sun pulled the Earth away. There's all these earthquakes, and everything got destroyed— in any event, they go out there and they don't find anything. You know, pa mentions, "Hey, if you see anything else out here, you know, Ma's a little fragile. Just, just don't bother,
0: you know, setting her off." One of the things that's interesting that we learn along the way here is that Pa used to be a scientist, and that he was one of the people who was part of a crew that understood that things were going wonky and that that there was a lot of a lot of destruction on the way, and they built what they thought would be a catastrophe proof bunker, a safe spot for people to get into. And then as the first round of of earthquakes and catastrophes hit, the bunker was actually destroyed. All of the other people were killed. And so Pa was able to, you know, by whatever means. He
1: throws this thing together, right? With whatever he has on hand, he grabs a bunch of blankets, anything he can think of to do insulation and keep them warm. All this stuff is, is just sort of thrown together in a makeshift way. It's barely enough to survive and they're doing the best they can to keep it going.
0: And so, while he's explaining all of this stuff, you're telling the story all over again, they hear noises from outside the blanket fort, from outside the nest, and Pa, like, grabs, was it a baseball bat or a wrench he had or something? Yeah, a hammer. Yeah, but that's he's not right.
1: obvious about it, right? He's telling his yeah. own story. when, when they go, Actually, when they go back inside, it, it's really tense. You know, Ma's all freaked out about it. Sis, who we don't really hear much about it, probably seems freaked out. The boy's freaked out. Pa may or may not be. We can't really tell. But anyway, everybody's kind of looking at each other like, uh-oh, you know, that's, what something's wrong. And to relieve the tension, the boy says, hey, Pa, can you tell us the story again of how all this happened? How did the dark star get us? And and Pa kind of says, okay, well, I've told the story a million times before, but I'll tell it again. Starts describing how the world used to be, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, and everybody doing their own thing. The boy's like, I don't believe any of this. This, this makes absolutely no sense because he has no experience with that environment. Right. And it just sounds crazy. That there's this world full of millions and billions of people who are, you know, fighting for resources and doing all these crazy things that humans do.
0: Yeah, the only way that, that the boy knows anything about the world are through the stories that his pa tells. And, you know, it, it, like I said, you know, if, if that's all you know, that's all you know. And he's always fascinated by them, always loves having the stories told. But regardless, you know, now... As, as this telling is going on, like I said before, the, we, we start to hear noises in the outside and, and, and there's this, this assumption begins to form that somebody is working their way through the layers of the blanket fort. And sure
1: enough... Yeah, somebody or something.
0: Yeah, somebody or something. Yeah. They're not really sure, but there's this moment of anticipation and there's this sort of, nobody wants to talk about it, but everybody knows that something's about to change and something's about to happen. And then sure enough... The curtain parts, or the curtain, you know, gets pushed aside a little bit, and and there's there's some people standing there.
1: Yeah, they're not really sure what's coming. I mean, the the boy, for a while, he's you know conjuring up in his imagination this whole idea that the frozen figures and all the corpses he's seen on his various trips outside are coming back to life, and they're gonna storm the nest like some weird zombie, frozen zombie apocalypse thing. But as it turns out, right, they, they are startled, the, the blankets pull back, these lights are shined in their eyes, and all of a sudden they realize, hey, they're not aliens after all. they're other humans in spacesuits.
0: Yeah, and they've got real spacesuits, not, not homemade buckets and, and so on. Uh, but it's these people that it turns out have been have been going around the earth in their rocket and as they as they cruise by cities, they scan the cities for heat signatures
1: yeah these are these are survivors from apparently los alamos national labs a nuclear research center and they had all the materials on hand when the, the catastrophe came they could make uh you know nuclear power from plutonium and uranium around the facility and they've apparently built this sort of very I guess comparatively high-tech civilization or little outpost where they can survive and They've been using the technology they have to go around the earth and pick up survivors. They are flying over whatever city these people are, happen to be in, see a heat signature, and start looking for it. They're like, I don't know why there's a signature here. It seems to be completely abandoned, but they they come upon the nest.
0: Yeah, and they make reference to have having rescued pods of people from somewhere in France. And and I forget where the other Hawaii. one is. Yeah, something like that. And, and, but anyway, so here they are. They, they There's this faint heat signature, faint because of the nest, um, but they, they find their way to it, and it turns out they land in the wrong building or, or they're exploring the wrong building, and that's where the boy saw them in the first place. So they finally narrow it down. They get on the right the, the right side of the block, and they make their way in, and they basically explain all of this, and they say, so we're here to rescue you. Come with us. And and they're not sure it, it, it's it's a it's such a curious response like none of them are sure that they really want to go like they think they want to go but then they're not sure that they're ready to go just now
1: yeah they've put all this time and energy and effort into staying alive in this this nest shelter for so long they're almost afraid to to leave it or they think it's almost criminal to abandon it after all this time they've put into to keeping it going they say something like, "It just seems like a shame to let this fire go out that they've been tending for years and years and years."
0: And on that note, the people who show up in their space suits—that are space suits, space suits—that are hermetically sealed and and all of that—they can't believe that these four people have survived without the without the ability to you know to to seal themselves off from the lack of environment or the lack of atmosphere around them, and and they just they they're just absolutely astounded. It defies scientific reality. I think the terminology Fritz
1: Lieber uses is double flabbergasted. Yeah, there you
0: go. <laughs> so they have defied not just all of the odds, but scientific reality to survive the way that they have. And nonetheless, the the four survivors that we originally met in this story are, as we said, they're, they're reluctant to go. So the, the people agree to leave them behind, but come back to get them later on so that they can have some time to... Like I don't know, get used to the notion of of leaving, and to uh, prepare themselves to do so.
1: And doesn't Ma say something like, "What would I wear?"
0: Yeah, <laughs> some she crazy asks thing about like, fashion. I'm
1: going to be rescued after ten years of being isolated, and I'm worried about what to wear to go to civilization.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and all of that said, though, that that's basically the the, the story, kind of.
1: Yeah, it kind of leaves it, you know, open as to what actually is going to happen. Are they going to go to the, you know, go meet the other survivors? Or are they going to stay in their shelter with maybe some help from the other survivors? Are they going to, they mentioned something about maybe turning their little outpost into like a, a place to do survival drills or something right, like right. that. But it's I think the you know, where the, the story comes to the climax is when you real that the, the family realizes they truly are not the last people left on the earth and the burden is no longer on them to continue humanity.
0: Yeah, and so one of the people that shows up is a woman, you know a youngish woman, but uh, you know somewhere in her 20s or whatever. And near the end of the story, the boy has this curious thought of, well, gee, I wonder if this woman would wait for me, you know, the implication being that, you know, he could marry her someday. He's only 10 now, but in 10 more years, you know, he'll be 20.
1: <laughs> and see, that's the first thing. Well, that, that's when I first realized that the version of the story I have is different than the version of the story that other people have, because they kept making references, you know, in our research to a 10-year-old boy. Well, here,
0: let me read how mine ends. I guess he's right. You think the beautiful young lady will wait for me till I grow up? I'll be 20 in only 10 years. That's how mine ends.
1: Yeah, that's where you get the knowledge that he's 10 years old. Now, this is how mine ends, right? It says, I guess he's right. You think the beautiful young lady will wait for me till I grow up? I asked her that, and she smiled to thank me. And then she told me she's got a daughter almost my age and that there are lots of children at the Atomic Places. Imagine that. Completely different ending.
0: Yeah, so that ending is the first ending that I remember. So I'm, I'm reading in a different version than when I first read the story. So that's curious because I wonder why there are multiple versions that are out there, at least two versions. I don't know.
1: And I once I found that out, I started looking for some other differences. I think there's, when the they describe how the Earth is captured by the dark star, they call it the Big Jerk or something like yeah. that. Yeah, the Big Jerk and is in this in, one too. in this version, it's called the Big Swoop. Oh. And then there's some other thing in my story where, the, where pa is talking about having all these chimney baffles to prevent air from escaping and how he's baffled that they work. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, I don't know, Fritz Lieber's mind. just like, oh, I, I, I forgot a few things I wanted to put into the story. And 20 years later, when my anthology was published, somewhere in the early 70s, that the, he's like, I'm
0: going to make some differences. Oh, yeah, that's right, because you're reading from an anthology of Fritz Lieber stuff, and I'm reading from just a collection that includes probably the original publication of the story.
1: Yeah, if you go to the original publication, the 1951 version, that is indeed how it ends. Okay. And that's why, for the life of me, I'm like, how do they know this kid's 10 years old? Because it never references it in my volume. Oh, that's interesting. But anyway, even if there are multiple versions of the story, that doesn't change the fact that this is... Yet a good example of what you see a lot of in early science fiction, which is a very sort of layman's versions of physics and chemistry, which is used as the main plot driver for a science fiction story. And in this case, it's the whole atmosphere freezes and you can go scoop it up in a bucket and theoretically melt it and use it to survive. Right. It's a it's a layman's term. And, and people will look at this and go, oh, that that almost seems a little plausible. But the story basically fails under any type of scientific <laughs> scrutiny whatsoever,
0: right? Right. Science fiction from before scientists were really driving a lot of the idea of what we needed to be talking about.
1: Right. They were good yarns, you know. And like Again, you look at other science fiction stories that use physics or chemistry as a driver. You know, the Bixby had a thing about the holes around Mars, which is this basically a moon that's four feet above the surface circling around. You've got uh, Hal Clement, who wrote a whole, I think maybe one or two novels on um, Mission of Gravity, right? Where there's like a gravity where everybody is, is squashed to the size of a quarter or a disc or something. But anyway, yeah, it, so it's a pretty popular concept to find some, something in physics where you're like, oh, I'm going to write a story about this little twist. And it happens to be
0: the freezing of air in this one. But Well, you made the comment at one point when, when you and I were talking about other stuff, that early science fiction, sometimes the science is treated much like magic might be, meaning that the authors make the assumption that most readers are not going to know any better, they're not going to know any differently. And so here's the thing where I'm gonna I'm gonna create a concept. I'm gonna explain it, you know, create a plausibility around it. And then I'm gonna roll with that. And, you know, once we got to a point where writers of fantasy wanted to start thinking about and talking about the plausibility of magic or, or, or magic having its own system of understanding and, and working is kind of its own kind of physics, if you will, you know, then we began to have much more complex examinations of what magic might be capable of or how it might work and whether or not stories were consistent in, the, in those workings. And this is very much, it falls into that same kind of realm. And of course, it makes sense with somebody like Fritz Lieber, who's going back and forth between fantasy and science fiction, that he's treating them in, in, in similar ways.
1: And nowadays you got people writing about the physics of Star Trek, right? Right. How did the transporter really work? How can the warp drive really work? All these things that were originally just, they threw them out there as plot devices and no one cared about the physics. And certainly in this story, no one cares about the physics because you look at things like heat retention and airflow and atmospheric regeneration. The fact that they're living essentially in a pure oxygen environment but they have a fire going right that you know fire and pure oxygen don't play real well together and if there's by the way there's no hydrogen so you, if there's no hydrogen you can't have any water which that's not going to help you very much as a human who's mostly made of water Right. You know, there's people who talk about the air pressure would blow the building up because it's a vacuum outside and they're basically in this old apartment building that would blow apart under any type of atmospheric pressure so you know, you got to realize these people are essentially on a spaceship. You know, they're in deep right. space, completely near absolute zero. It's it's a vacuum outside, and they've gone into space in a earthquake-twisted, falling-down apartment building filled with liquid oxygen and a fire and no water. So it's no wonder the people who find them are amazed that they're alive because there's absolutely no way they could be.
0: Yeah, but you know what? There's a whole lot of science fiction and, and even a lot of contemporary science fiction where we're meant to just like turn a blind eye to reality and and just, you know, let it be that these people somehow survived because of ingenuity or adaptability or just they beat the odds, whatever that might mean.
1: Or you could just refer back to the third podcast in the series with the cold equations, which actually has science and where people actually don't survive when they're not supposed to. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because eventually science fiction has the swing into the you know the cold hard science where everything had to be scientifically plausible and and of course that's a good thing, you know. But where there's a, there's a lot of stuff then where it is predicated upon the science being right. Where in this case it doesn't matter.
1: So so we've pretty much well established that the science is inaccurate. And there's a, probably a few other things we could look at in this story that sort of date it in the, you know, late 40s, early 50s time frame. That the idea that they're going down in this apartment building to to get shovelfuls of coal to burn, you know, that, you know, at the time, sure, you know, pl- plenty of apartment buildings were powered by coal and heated by coal basements and and this does kind of place it firmly in the 1950s. We talked a little bit about the nuclear family, mom, dad, you know, Billy and Susie, one boy, one girl. And that's the, those are the protagonists of the story. But aside from that, I don't know too much that would date it to the point where it's
0: unreadable, it, no, physics aside. I mean, I suppose the the one place where we made reference to, to mob kind of losing it or becoming what might have been the stereotypically flighty hysterical. or, or yeah, hysterical. And yet I think Lieber tries to redeem himself with that by, by Pa saying, you know what, if it wasn't for Ma, we wouldn't be here. So like, he's, he's just saying, you know, she's, she's done too much. she She's seen too much and she's having a hard time right now, but don't, don't judge her for that. So even when he takes that turn into, that possibly dismissive 50s, uh, you know, aura or not aura atmosphere toward women, you know, even he then challenges it and says, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't really apply here.
1: And one thing we didn't really talk about much is there's a section in the story where Pa kind of goes into the philosophy of why he's actually keeping everybody alive. What's the point, right? He knows everyone is dead. And he kind of goes into this little philosophical, rather simplistic argument, in my personal opinion, that That life is good, and life needs to be preserved, and that's why we're going to keep surviving against all odds. And that's really the only explanation he gives, right? That life is good, and because it's good, we should try to keep it going as long as possible. Because
0: something might change. And then, of course, something does. It does. So self-fulfilling prophecy there.
1: So, of course, by now, the listeners who have gotten this far are still wondering what the reference to the pussy coffee is because that's really the hook in this story. I just sure as heck didn't know what it was when I first read this story. And in fact, until probably a few weeks ago, I still didn't know what it was. It turns out it's a reference to a French drink called a Pousse Cafe.
0: And you actually found a recipe for it.
1: And I'm actually probably butchering that pretty much because I don't speak French. And yes, you can find the <clears throat> recipe online as you can with everything nowadays. It is essentially a layered cocktail drink that was popular in France and came over to America, probably in the early 50s. I don't know if these French things were super popular, and that's why Fritz Lieber would assume his audience knew what it was. Right. But um, Did Fritz Lieber anyway, himself drink them? I don't know. It is entirely possible. But what they say, it is a layered drink, which is why they refer to it in context of the layers of the atmosphere that are frozen. And uh, the comment I I read is that it takes a steady hand and a strong stomach to make it because it consists of grenadine, maraschino liqueur, creme de mint, creme de violette, yellow chartreuse, and brandy, none of which seem like go together in my stomach at least.
0: No, that just sounds vile to me. (laughs) I've had everything but the creme de violette or whatever it is, and... I cannot imagine wanting to put all of those things together at the same time in my mouth.
1: Well, you you know the only reason they picked these was because they're a number of alcohols that layer or a number of liqueurs that layer. And they probably just said, what are the seven liqueurs we can find that actually can layer in a glass? Oh, take these seven.
0: Yeah, you know, these are all liquors and liqueurs that are that are rather sweet, generally speaking, so they would be easier to layer because they'd have a a little greater viscosity to them. You know, that doesn't necessarily make them good to drink together, but it makes them easier to layer. And it looks really cool in the pictures. Right. And that's of course what matters.
1: Well, probably the other thing that matters is we should look at this story like we normally do on our wonderful, hmm, whoa, what the fuck scale.
0: What do you... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt to you to begin with on this one. I'm not going to let you throw it to me first. What do you think uh, about this, man. Dan? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's
1: almost none of them, to be honest. I, I didn't get a woe. I didn't... Well, most of my what the fuck was just thinking about the physics as I was yeah. reading it. And it is a post-apocalyptic story, right? There's lots of them. And it's, it's what I would call a good yarn
0: <laughs> That's a good punt. Yeah, it is. It is genuinely difficult to categorize in in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's it's even a little vague or sketchy on the notion of whether or not it's science fiction when you look at the science being so bad and the science being so wonky. It's definitely fictional.
1: Yeah, well, there there it's is fi- that. It's not science fiction. It's fictional science.
0: <laughs> there you go. It's science fantasy. So, you know, on, on that note, yeah, I, I, I scratch my head a lot reading this one. I liked the story, but at the The writing same, is great. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Fritz Lieber, but at the same time, I, I, I kind of find myself questioning, why 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 do I like it? Dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but Come nonetheless, on, Fritzy, baby. I you know but, but I I think it's cool like we mentioned earlier that it has to be a relatively early post-apocalyptic story. I mean we we were not yet in 1951 we did not yet have the same kind of dark sense of of doom and gloom that emerges especially in the in the 60s. So
1: yeah, it's a very optimistic story.
0: Yeah. It it's peculiar and and you're right. It, it I, I don't know that, that Lieber thinks it's going to make us think. I don't know that Lieber thinks it's going to like impress us with the science.
1: Well, Lieber died in 1992, so we have no idea yeah, what he's thinking now.
0: we can't ask him now. Yeah, so instead of being, hmm, whoa, what the fuck, it's more like uh, Head Scratcher for me. I create a new category. I would
1: say it's worth reading... If you're a fan of this kind of literature, right, where you're willing to suspend your disbelief and just, you know, lay back in your chair, read a good yarn or realize that it was written for just a, you know, the 1950s lay person who probably didn't know virtually anything about physics or chemistry. I mean, 1951, you got 10 or 20 percent of the people are still working on farms, right? The latest technology, you've got refrigerators know, you've got maybe color TV coming in. So That's great. Right. So it, it's not surprising that people would look at the story and go, huh, atmosphere freezing? Huh, go out and get a bucket of air? Yeah, I can see that. Again, if you look at the the temperatures that are involved, oxygen freezes at 361 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Right. <laughs> they make a reference to liquid helium on the surface, and liquid helium is, you know, 452 degrees below zero, which is practically four degrees Kelvin, Right. So the idea that you're just going to throw a couple of blankets up to keep you warm (laughs) when you're like 20 feet away from four degrees Kelvin is just pretty ridiculous.
0: But one of the elements that I think is sustainable and and that clearly captures people's imagination is exactly what you're talking about in terms of the cold. Even if his science about cold isn't consistent with the physical reality of, of, of enduring it, the notion of cold space, the notion of a post-apocalyptic world where things where the freezing temperatures are are more cold than we could have ever before imagined. Like that kind of notion of, of like horrific post-apocalyptic kind of setting absolutely stays consistent or at least absolutely, you know, stays relevant to filmmaking and to, um, you know, story writers for well, even even to today. You know, we it's one of the easiest ways to turn an environment into something that we think of as more alien or inhospitable is all of a sudden to make it cold. You think about things like Snowpiercer, or the day after tomorrow, or the colony. I mean, these are all post-apocalyptic visions where cold is the thing that makes it post-apocalyptic.
1: And that probably all comes out of the whole idea of nuclear winter that we all heard about Absolutely. years and years and years ago. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the... The reality we seem to be facing from a climatological standpoint nowadays is completely opposite. Right. More post-apocalyptic stories about blazing heat.
0: Yes. Certainly as we're recording this, I mean, the heat index here today was over 100 again.
1: It's not quite Mad Max style yet. (laughs) It's just getting there.
0: That's right. I think, you know, Mad Max outfits might be cooler when it comes to post-apocalyptic, but, you know
1: know. Uh, assless leather chaps are not comfortable, probably, no matter what the climate is, so...
0: Well, you certainly don't want to be wearing those when it's 400 below.
1: And, of course, that's why you listen to this podcast, for the friendly advice and useful advice that we dole out every so often.
0: Yes, because you can't survive an apocalypse without listening to us first.
1: So, getting on to our next story, I believe it has a <laughs> at least a little bit more physics in it that's that's recognizable and accurate. Uh, what what do we cover next there, Bill?
0: Our next story is "Inconstant Moon" from Larry Niven, and and absolutely, it it it's much closer to the cold equations than it is to a pale of air.